Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop, and we spent five seasons of Loose Units, the podcast, talking through his cases, but the unexplained and the paranormal kept rearing their heads. So this season, we're going to take a look at hauntings, ghost stories, and the crimes behind them, because the story doesn't end when the killing is done. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello, and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. This week, we are dealing with something very disturbing, so just a warning, if you are one of our rare squeamish listeners and we would completely understand this, feel free to duck out for the next two episodes. Now, this week, we are going to Adelaide. Typically speaking on The Shadow Files, we visit locations where terrible traumatic events have happened, but in this case, we're kind of spreading an umbrella over the city of Adelaide. Now, back about two or three years ago, Dad and I did a live show in Adelaide at a stand-up venue called The Rhino Room. Dad, do you recall that night? Mm, I do. And um, I decided since we were in Adelaide, because what I like to do every city we go to, I like to do a bit of research. And I came up with a very disturbing story about Adelaide. Yeah, and that's what we're dealing with this week. Now, when you told this to the audience, because the night was going very well, it was a sold-out crowd, it was in a comedy venue, so people were feeling pretty, you know, pretty light and frothy and chill. The drinks were flowing, and everyone had kind of met us beforehand. We came out on stage. Tegan and Mum was actually in the audience as well. And you decided to just do a little bit of off-the-cuff banter, which is completely fine, because that's part of the charm of the live shows, and it's why we're looking forward to getting back onto stage as soon as possible. But you looked at the crowd and said, who here is familiar with the case of the family? And I'll be honest, Dad, it's not that it killed the mood, it's that everyone just went dead quiet. And then you kind of upped the ante and said, well, statistically, someone in this room knows someone who did it, whether that person... You know, whether they actually know or not, they actually know someone who did this or was involved in this case. And it really did kind of strike home. And I'll be honest, we we market ourselves on stage as, you know, semi-amusing. And that kind of took a while to come back from. But it's really stuck with me. I didn't actually know what the family was. And this season, we're trying to look at, you know, different locations where terrible things had happened. And I just, I strayed back to that anecdote because I'd been asked by a bunch of listeners when we're getting back on stage. And I thought, you know what, we should deal with the family. So 
that's what we're doing for the next two episodes. We are looking at the disturbing murders and terrible crimes that got kicked off late 1979, I believe. Now, Dad, I thought we could do this in chronological order. You were a police officer in the early 80s. You were in the academy and then you were actually, you know, in general duties. I often wonder what it's like for cops to have heard about these very, very, very infamous crimes from within the force. I mean, over in North Sydney, in Mossman, what was it like being a cop and hearing about these crimes? Did you actually hear about these crimes from all the way over in Adelaide? Mm. It, it was national news. Um, mm. The details um, I was actually unaware of, the specific details in terms of the horrendous, mind-numbingly fucked up. It's of all the... I think of all the crimes I've ever investigated and researched and heard about and watched on TV and mm. even... It, this kind of takes you to another dimension in terms of what happened to some of these boys. Paul, you've done some research. Have you sort of delved into some of the terrible... Um, I mean, I don't even think I spoke about it on stage specifically, um, but it was clear no. at that night that everyone in Adelaide was, you know, keyed in. Uh, I guess it'd be like living in Snowtown. Yeah, very much so. It, it does kind of have that flavour, doesn't it, where, you know, it, it would add this sort of geographical taint, which is, I mean, Adelaide is a beautiful city. Uh, I've toured there, you know, several years in a row. A few years back, I was doing, you know, um, the Fringe Festival a couple of years in a row. And it's it's a gorgeous city. It's really, it's a really great place to live. But back in the 70s, um, it had a really interesting relationship with the uh, LGBT community. And um, it became one of the more progressive cities in Australia, actually. Uh, there were gay clubs all across Adelaide. And it was a fairly welcoming place. And I think it was, was it the first city in Australia to decriminalize homosexuality? I think it was one of the first. They had a very liberal um, premier, Don Dunstan. You know, I don't know whether that's sort of anything to do with it. but um... From what I'd heard, actually, uh, and this was one of the, apparently one of the reasons why they made this push was because of public outcry after three young men were chucked in the river. Because there's a, there's a river that runs through the middle of Adelaide, I believe. Um, and I th and and the rumour was that a bunch of cops did this. And Correct. that it was, yeah, and that it was violence perpetrated. And one of the three young men drowned. Yeah, one was an English professor, professor of law. Mm. And um, Paul, did you know that Scotland Yard came out to Australia to investigate that particular no. crime? No, I didn't. Mm. I didn't. And I don't know what Scotland Yard would have thought. I don't know whether in Scotland Yard at the time they still had exceptionally, um, what's a good word to use? I mean, the police force historically was was very anti-gay in in the 60s and 70s. Right. And, and when I joined the police force, it was as well. Uh, it was actually pretty scary, some of the things I witnessed. And when I read this about it, it was alleged that police had actually thrown these people off the bridge. Um, one drowned. Uh, that's the professor of law. Right. But Paul, um, this is going to be, this is going to possibly blow your brains out. The, the only person that's ever been arrested in this entire saga, even though it's known that there were many other people involved, the only person 
that's ever been arrested, charged, and is in jail probably for the rest of his life is a guy called Bevan von Einem. Do you know, Paul, that that night, that the the night that allegedly police threw these these people into the river, one of them came out of the river, basically crawled out, and get ready for this, he was picked up by Bevan von Eymann. and But nothing sinister happened that night. But that's the first time that the police became aware of this person that weirdly was driving that night that the police allegedly threw these people into the river and he then picked one up. Did you know yeah. that? Yeah, that reminds me of, oh God, who was it? Um, famous serial killer who actually managed to get himself brought in as a consultant on the crimes that he committed. It wasn't Gacy. It was, fuck, it was a really charming guy. Um, killed a lot of women in the States. Was played by, oh, fuck, why can't I remember his name? Um, when you think of the, the major serial killers in the States, who, you th- who do you think of? Oh, um, just watched a series about him for the second time, and that's um, a very charismatic guy that was studying law. Yes, yes. Oh, and he God. got he, So he got brought in to consult on his own cases. Now, mm. it's not the same, but it means that when police look back on the kind of you know records of the of the case which has been hounding them for years and years as as the family case actually did with the uh, Adelaide police to find the name of someone who may have been you know the perpetrator and to find out that you fucking had him earlier on and you didn't cotton on of course you couldn't have you couldn't know at that point but to find out that he kind of was on the record that early can you imagine can you imagine mm. if he'd done something that night to be hauled away. And look, this is all speculation, but you're right. It, that is a bizarre coincidence. And that's in 1975. And then they passed the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which made South Australia, yeah, the first Australian state or territory where members of the gay community didn't have to worry about, you know, persecution. Of course, that didn't necessarily stop it happening, but it did mean that it kind of made Adelaide a bit of a hotspot. Um, you know, there were lots of clubs and pubs opened up, which were, you know, gay friendly, which is fantastic. Um, but it is weird that Bevan von Einem was actually around for this. And, you know, four years later, in 1979, uh, that's when things really kicked off. Now, I thought what we could do, Dad, is because we're doing a two-part episode. We don't want to rush through this. This is a... It, it's worth saying that, a f- that quite a few of these murders are unsolved. A lot of this is open. And like you said on that night, all those years ago, back in Adelaide at the Rhino Room, people in Adelaide, there, are, there will be people in Adelaide People you know, if, you, if you're there, who know what happened or mm. know who did it or mm. know something and aren't coming forward. This, I mean, if you go to the Crime Stoppers website, there is still a cash reward. Um, I believe it's 200000 for if you help give evidence that leads to a successful conviction uh, for the murder of... I mean, this is per victim, I believe. But the first victim of these killers or killer, I'm not sure, was Alan Barnes. And he was a teenager who was growing up in the suburbs. He was 17 years old uh, at the time. He was living with his parents. They were both English immigrants in a suburb just north of Adelaide called Salisbury. And I've not been there, but it sounds pretty idyllic. Um, Now, Dad, could you walk us through what happened to Alan Barnes? Well, he was uh, was actually 16 at the time he was murdered in 1979. Right. Right. 
and he was last seen, he was hitchhiking. And hitchhiking was very, you know, it was, it was pretty cool in the 70s. I mean, I, I've, I've hitchhiked. I hitchhiked from here to Coffs Harbour once, which is about 600k. Um, and you just kind of felt a bit safer back then, even though it actually was really dangerous. It's so bad. Um, but I guess it's like swimming in the ocean. Uh, you might get taken by a shark. But statistically, it's unlikely. I, you do not see people hitchhiking now, do you? Not really. I mean, very, very rarely. But I feel like it's because of cases like this or mm. the Ivan Malat stuff up in Belangelo mm. State Forest that you really do have. When, when you think about hitchhiking now, you think, well, I don't want to get fucking chopped up. And mm. that stuff actually happened. No. It, it, and, and can you imagine? So this, this is a 16-year-old. Now, 16 is, you know, you're in year 10. Um, and... You know, it's it's Adelaide, and my cousins, Paul, lived in Adelaide, and we went there a few times, and I lived in a country town called Armadale, yeah. and we would go to Adelaide, which is a bloody long drive, might I add, to visit my cousins. And I remember I was, let me think about this, I would have been about 10, and the first thing that struck me, as I sit here thinking about my first experience coming into Adelaide, was what an incredibly quiet, large country town. That's that that was my impression. And mm. it's flat and it's just there's there's one tram that takes you to the end of the line, which is um is it called Glenelg? It's it's a I beach. Th- I think so. Yeah, I think it I think it's called Glenelg. And you know there are museums and, and Christine used to go down there regularly to work when she was working for the Commonwealth Public Service, and I'd fly down to visit mm-hmm. her. And it's just, I mean, I'll never, ever forget. And here's a, a slight anecdote about uh, Adelaide. Christine and I were walking through a particular part of Adelaide, and unbeknownst to us, we were smack bang in the middle of what they called the red light district. It was so immaculate, and there was a gentleman, a council worker, polishing one of the garbage bins. And we kind of laughed because the place was so pristine as opposed to Sydney's red light district back then, which was, well, if you if you were in King's Cross back then, you knew you were in King's Cross. So there's a whole different vibe. But in big country towns or small cities across the world, inevitably there's an underbelly that is beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. It's what we don't know about that really freaks me out. But the thing is, I mean, this kid was, like you said, he was, you know, 17 years old. He crashed at a mate's place, right? Mm. Um, I think he'd begun kind of partying a little bit, but he was 17. And he'd spent a night at a friend's house and apparently they were seen at the area's gay bars and clubs. Mm. Um, You know, that's the kind of nightlife that you mentioned a little bit. But Mm. the next morning he woke up, and this was on Sunday the 17th of June, they woke up, uh, they tried hitchhiking back to Alan's family's place, um, which back then, like you said, people did. And the road they tried to hitch a ride on was called Grand Junction Road, which is a very, very busy road. And then they realized, apparently, that they weren't going to have any like hitchhiking as a duo, that they might have more luck going solo. So they mm. said goodbye to each other. And that was that. Um, Alan's friend got back to his house okay, um, and then, but then what happened next, Dad? 
Well, what happened was there was a white HQ Holden sedan mm. and apparently it had three or four people inside it. This car's pulled up and picked up Alan Barnes. And that was the last time that anyone saw him alive. And um, they then found his severely mutilated body dumped in the South Para Reservoir, which is northeast of Adelaide. And there's a, there's a sort of a thread that's going to run through all these victims, Paul. And obviously they did a post-mortem examination <clears throat> and they what the post-mortem revealed was that he died of massive blood loss from an anal injury. Now, I'm not sort of specifying or sort of, you know, emphasising, you know, anal injury, but it's very important because this becomes a very important fact within that interlinks all of these cases. Well, he was they, found... Yeah, I mean, he was found one week later, first of all. Typically speaking, Dad, you've dealt with missing persons cases. When somebody is found, when somebody's still missing a week later, what are the odds of them being alive? Look, a week, um, depending on the circumstances, I mean, people do just go go missing. Mm. Um, but at any given time, the statistics in Australia are that there are up to at least 150 people missing persons that have actually been murdered at any given time in Australia. That will never, ever be... These things will never be solved, um, as we've discussed previously. I mean, weirdly, these these offenders didn't actually go to a lot of trouble to hide the bodies. They, they went to a lot of trouble during the process. But these people, these young people also, um, they... So with the first person that they found, now, now when we say first person, we actually can't say the first victim. This is the first victim that has was sort of found. Yeah, There may well be lots of victims. There are, I've read some very good academic studies about this particular case. And a senior researcher at the Adelaide University has said that it's believed that in relation to this particular case or cases involving the family, in inverted commas, there are probably at least 150 victims. Wait, murders or assaults? Murders, rapes, tortures, all connected with the same group. But at okay? this point, at this point, we've got the first one who's kind of flagged the public eye Correct. and... A week later, so Sunday 24th of June, which is a week after Alan was seen hitchhiking, um, some hikers were hiking in the foothills of Adelaide, which is just east of Adelaide. And, um, you know, it's like a pretty well-known hiking spot, apparently. And these two people were hiking and they found Alan's body. They didn't know it was Alan's body at that point. I think they had to get Alan's dad and grandfather to come and identify the remains, which is fucking horrifying mm. and when they arrived um police actually thought because the body was in a really bad way but um there's a bridge just above where the body was found and they reckoned that what they tried to do was actually throw the body into the water but missed and then mm. just left the body there mm. um which is i mean now apparently he'd been held and tortured for quite a few days mm. 
Um, the, I mean, the signs of torture are, are, are terrible, but they also found a chemical compound in his body, uh, mm. which is chloral hydrate, which I think is like a roofie or is it a sleeping tablet? But um, that doesn't bode particularly well. Um, could he be? Could he have been slipped that while he was out? I mean, no. That hang on, that wouldn't make sense because he was he was hitchhiking in the next day, so it wouldn't have been something that he took. Right? Not not a not a week later. Look, Paul. Um, one of the things that you must remember <clears throat> during this particular series we're doing is that every single person that we're going to be talking about got into a motor vehicle, yeah, or was dragged in. There are cases in the future that we'll talk about where they're actually dragged in screaming. But Paul, during postmortems, they found in every single person, every victim, between one and five substances so the the sort of initial hypothesis is that when they entered the motor vehicle and some of them were enticed but that's a, a part we'll come to and very very interesting how, how some of these people were enticed into these cars but um they had they were probably offered a drink so you'd hop into the back seat yep and the first thing they because these these people that are doing this are so organized this is so premeditated. Mm. And you'd be given a drink. It might be a hot you know, day because Adelaide gets really, really hot. Or it might be, you know, just they'd say, oh, look, you know, would you like a glass of Coca-Cola or whatever? But they, everything was spiked and spiked dramatically and radically. And we know from other people's accounts that sometimes they'd um, end up at a location yeah. And they have eyewitness accounts to say that some of these boys, <clears throat> by the time they got to certain locations, were already unconscious on the back seat. So these these were mighty powerful, you know, tranquilizers. Yeah. And then um look, I, I don't want to sort of go on about it, but it's important to remember, Paul, that they did this first guy, this young young boy, he he'd suffered a major um he'd had something massive shoved up his anus. So he suffered some massive sort of object. Um, so that's that's important to remember because what we want to establish is a link between all yeah. these cases. And so. the, I think the drugging is a link. The, you know, the, the time, I think it ends up being kind of the time of day and the day ends up being a bit of a link. And the, yeah, the means of death, the fact that they were kind of re- restrained that... But at this point, it's one person. They found one person and they know about the white sedan. But I mean, I read, and we'll come to this later on, but I read that one of the descriptions, because a guy actually got away. There was a guy later on who got taken and then actually escaped. And he described the guy driving as an older man who dyed his hair. And my suspicion is if you're trying to kind of grab young guys and trying to appeal to them, you're probably going to be less suspicious if it's someone roughly your age trying to age yourself down. I mean, it seems to me this whole thing's pretty calculated, but um, you mentioned early in the episode Bevan von Einem, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, two days after they found Alan Barnes just under that bridge, um, an anonymous caller reached out to the Adelaide police and mentioned Bevan von Einem as being the person who killed Alan or being responsible for his death. And so they whack his name on a list of suspects and then things kind of escalate 
Um, now, when I mentioned a $200,000 reward leading to a conviction, uh, that was from the Crime Stoppers page for Neil Muir, who is the second victim. He was 25 at the time, and uh, he was an addict, and he was kind of moving around a lot. And this was in August 1979. Do you want to tell us what happened to him? Okay, so Paul, Neil Muir, mm. um, he was a bit older than quite a few of the other victims. 25, but he was, yeah. Yeah, but he was actually um, last seen in Hindley Street, Adelaide. And here's something that's really bizarre. He was seen in the company of a Dr. Peter Leslie Millhouse. Have you done any research about this doctor? Yep. Oh, God. Yep. And he was seen with the doctor mm. um, at 3 p.m. on the day he was murdered. I mean, he was a drug addict at this point. I mean, Neil was a struggling addict and... Um, he was trying to wean himself off heroin, and so he was on methadone pretty heavily. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe he got back on heroin, but, you know, um, and I think he, there were rumors that he was using sex work to get money, um, and yeah. that came from people who knew him from, you know, in, in Adelaide's gay community. And, I mean, there's two bars that he was spotted at, the Duke of York and the Buckingham Arms. And these are two of the bars that I mentioned earlier in the show, mm-hmm. um, kind of the, like, you know, big gay hangouts at the time. Um, and it's in this kind of circle, this geographic circle, and in this kind of context, which he is seen with this doctor, right? Mm. Well, this um, gentleman, the guy, Neil Muir, he was also um, a male prostitute, but he was suspected of actually having sex with Dr. Peter Milhouse in return for drugs. He was basically homeless. And I'll tell you something really freaky that I uncovered during this whole sort of, you know, a lot of research was that when he was found, um, he died from loss of, massive loss of blood, Paul, due to a massive, massive anal injuries. And do you want me to describe how they found him? I suppose we should really. It's oh, it's one of the yeah, most terrible things that I've yeah. ever read, actually. But I think it's important. If you've, if you've researched the case of the Black Dahlia, which happened in Los Angeles back in the kind of golden Hollywood era, it's one of the most famous serial killings ever. And one of the interesting things about the Black Dahlia cases is the way the body was found, right? The, the, the level of savagery, you know, Jack the Ripper, similarly, the yeah. way this body was treated. Now... I will leave it up to the listeners, Dad, and I'd love to hear your perspective as to whether this, what you're about to describe, was done out of uh, sadism or anger or whether it was an attempt to have the body uh, just be compacted down so it would be you know, easier to sink, harder to find, quicker to degrade, some sort of practical means as opposed to kind of malice. So, I mean... Describe it, and then we'll kind of talk about the possibilities. Mm. Well, Paul, it's very important to also be aware that Muir, uh, Neil Muir, who was 25 at the time, he was actually involved in procuring boys for Bevan von Einem. Did you know that? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's all very insidious. Where'd you, where'd you get that from? I'm, I've, I've got a whole lot of information. It's just, I've got detailed information. Okay. And that's one of the, and it's not was suspected of. It's murder, or Muir was involved in procuring boys for BVE, Bevan von Eymann. So it's fascinating, isn't it? Really interesting. So there's a bit of a sort of a thing happening. And I think, Paul, I think at this juncture, I'd like to sort of just, for the record, let the people know where the term the family comes from and what it was on 60 Minutes. Um, a senior detective was being interviewed and he actually used a, a phrase and he said... Um, he used, in conversation he said to break up a happy family so and once this detective had used that term family it kind of stuck and it became it's sort of gone into folklore which is kind of interesting but um, you know there's only ever been one suspect charged even though there are, are multiple suspects but when they found this particular um, you know the, the guy Muir he um as I said, he died from loss of blood due to massive vein injuries, but his body had actually been cut into four sections. So he was cut just above the knees, um, immediately above the hips and at the neck. Then all his organs were removed from his body and they never ever located his organs, in internal organs, which is really fascinating. And then, and this is when it gets fairly gross, but... Fascinating, I guess. His scrotum had been cut open. His testicles were removed. Then the head of his penis was cut off. And the penis shaft had been neatly cut down the midline. Then his hands and fingers were disarticulated, which people might like to uh, to sort of find out what that means but it's quite a technical thing to do and any because this gentleman was was tattooed but all the skin that was tattooed had been removed you know cut off the body but then they were found with the rest of the body parts and then his remains were tightly packaged in garbage bags and thrown off the jetty at molten cove and 
Here's something quite interesting, Paul. They were unable to do toxicity tests because all his internal organs were missing. So they basically hollowed him out to put his limbs and extremities and whatnot into the cavities. And as a result, any organs containing traces of the potential drug cocktail would have been gone. Okay. Mm, mm. Okay. So I'm assuming this was found by, you know, fishermen. I mean, this is floating around. I think it was low tide at the time, but... um, they would have brought those in pretty quickly and investigated those. You have, you know, you spent time in forensics. You've done many, many autopsies. The medical examiners had a real, had a real time doing this. Um, I mean, what would that have been like back in 1979? Was was technology and science sufficient to actually glean much from these remains? Or, <laughs> well, or, is, it, or is, it, is this a lot to work with, do you think? They don't tell us how they identified him, but in my opinion, it would have been mm. through fingerprints. Okay. So... The bags brought back tightly wrapped to the... I mean, they would have obviously been opened at some stage, but they would have tried sort of to, to keep the bodies relatively... It's funny using the word intact when they were sort of completely disassembled and reassembled in sort of a macabre, almost Frankenstein-esque manner. Mm. But some... And I, I, I'm going to sort of speak sort of with empathy here because this is exactly the sort of thing that would have happened to me. So if I had have been the the officer involved in identification it may have been just one officer you know it's not a it's not a job that requires even two people to be honest with you unless we go into that terrible the human glove saga which as we know was pretty horrendous with the the rice bubble boy but um i mean i was confronted in my time with plastic bags um you know how they'd scooped up bodies that have been you know run over by trains for example or squashed in industrial accidents, um, you know, or blown up or whatever the, the reason. And I'd often be confronted with just one or two plastic bags. So in this particular case, the forensic officer, male or female, would have been given a gurney uh, at, at the morgue and the gurney would have been wheeled in, uh, the bags would be opened up and then, you know, obviously you'd don relatively good protective gear, probably better now than back then, uh, and you would start, you know, you'd obviously start photographing the entire um, scene before you, which is indescribably bizarre because we've only got this information today because of detailed forensic reports and someone had to actually, you know, the nuts and bolts of this is that some, I won't say unfortunate person, uh, but some professional person that's that's their bag that excuse the pun no that's their that's on the day they were rostered to work this is what came in and you know you have to sort of stand back and have a look at i mean you've got sort of arms and legs and body parts actually shoved back inside the chest cavity so they've removed all the intestines did they do that to facilitate space to then put the arms and legs into the into the cavity it the, the mind boggles i've been thinking about what they did to the gentleman's penis and i bearing in mind what we know that haven't discussed but we'll talk about it in terms of some of the people that we used you know it's 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 a it's a mix and and paul i think it's important at this juncture to also say that quite a few of the victims were were not gay that yeah, I did. But what, Dad, something I actually want to touch on is because you're talking about 
you know, the unpleasant but necessary job that forensics would have had mm. dealing with these garbage bags full of the mm. remains of Neil Muir. Um, the first victim was found, ju- I think, just over a week after he went missing, uh, after he was hitchhiking on that road. Neil Muir had been missing for less than 24 hours. So that's a distinct advantage for the police because decomposition hasn't yet you know, I mean, if he'd been found a week later, my God, you would just have way less to work with. Mm. Um, and the first person that they actually talked to, and uh, I think Rod Hunter was the name of the investigator who interviewed this person, was Bevan Von Einem, uh, who, as we established earlier, was kind of dobbed in by an anonymous caller. And apparently Von Einem was um, a former lover of Neil Muir's. Yeah, from about, <clears throat> from about, about four years beforehand, <clears throat> which is kind of roughly when the incident happened with the... Mm. Uh, yeah. And also that, that Muir had been used by Von Einem to procure young boys. Right. So it's sort of a nefarious, insidious thing. But, you know, back to the back to what this particular forensic officer was confronted with, um, they they haven't mentioned that the fingerprints uh, or fingers were, were not there. So they would have um, taken one of the arms and laid it out on a bench they would have um, one of the characteristics of of a cadaver that's been sort of deceased for let's say a week is that it generally can become depending on you know the the environment but if it's inside a bag it's probably sweating you know the, the moisture would be building up particularly if it was warm so the first thing the the uh the technician has to do is to dry the epidermis and you would use you know sponges and uh, you know absorbent papers and you would also so you know you'd be drying out the ten fingers you'd be preparing them you would then use what's called a morgue spoon which is where you would get your fingerprint form and you would fold because you have to take a fingerprint uh, you have to fingerprint every single finger so it's five fingers on each hand, assuming that they're all there. If a couple of the fingers are missing or they've been mutilated, which can happen where the victim is um, trying to defend oneself from, from example, a hammer or a knife, if they're still alive as they're being bashed, uh, then you can see defensive wounds. I have not been able to establish with any of the victims that there were, in fact, any defensive wounds, which means... A lot of this stuff, um, you know, the 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 torture side of things, I can only I can only hope that um, heavily restrained or heavily restrained you would, you would, or, or you would hope basically compl- yeah dead or completely completely. If I'm going to have my my penis, um, you know, the the top of my penis cut off and my testicles removed, I would not particularly like to be awake during that procedure. No, and there's something I. I'm going to struggle to deal with having heard out loud. Anyway, right. Let's zip back to the timeline. Neil Muir's body is found in the trash bags. Then the cops get two phone calls uh, letting him know about Neil's relationship with the doctor, with Dr. Peter Leslie Milhouse, who weirdly, I mean really weirdly, was actually a doctor who worked over at Mount Gambia. Now, when we drove down from Melbourne to Adelaide for the live show, we stayed in Mount Gambia. You remember Mount Gambia, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. So 
He's living in, um, he's in his mid forties. He lives alone. He lives in Mount Gambia and he drives a Holden sedan. Yeah. Hmm. And, and this is where things get really weird and conspiracy theory-ish, which is not something I typically like to indulge in, but he's related to the former Attorney General of South Australia, Robin Milhouse, who became a Supreme Court Justice three years later in 1982. But that is so fascinating, Paul. I, I didn't know that. That's just so... That adds weight to the whole, you know... That is... I mean, now, now, what happens is, right, the cops go on this kind of... They go straight for Milhouse, right? I mean, they make a beeline, but... They kind of fumble it, and Milhouse gets away with it. He gets he, he gets let off scot free. I'm starting to, I'm pretty concerned that his connection with uh, you know soon to be Supreme Court Justice Robin Milhouse got him a little slack. Cut now. I don't because I don't know the ins and outs of what actually happened in the courtroom, but I mean, and we can talk about how the case was fumbled later on, but. Two people call up and say, hey, Peter Milhouse um, was seen with Neil and was connected to him. And apparently uh, in the days leading up to Muir's death, Milhouse, I'm going to have to say Dr. Milhouse, or I'm going to feel like I'm talking about Milhouse from The Simpsons, which is, this is not him, uh, had gone on a bit of a bender. Um, Apparently he was a kind of recovering alcoholic and he checked into a rehab center called Osmond House. But before he did that, apparently he consulted with his attorney um, to check on any kind of legal uh, issues he might run into in the future. Right? Mm-hmm. And then when he's in rehab, he's refusing to speak to police about his relationship, his alleged relationship with Neil Muir. So the prosecutors start building this case up, which is all kind of based on hearsay. They don't have any actual evidence linking them. So what they were hoping to do, I think, was get him in the courthouse and scare the shit out of him and basically hope that putting enough pressure on him quickly enough would kind of make him spill his guts. But that didn't work. They didn't really have anything to actually pin on him. And so he gets away with it. Hmm. I noticed you said spill his guts, Paul. I think that was kind of weird you said that that was yeah just a turn of phrase completely mm. unintentional but yeah i mean we know that um you know corruption even today's it, it happens in if you go back 10 years it happened more 20 years more than that and when i was in the police force in the 80s it was rampant and ratchet and full on and scary and it was so heavy so if you're talking late 70s early 80s in australia in adelaide i can just imagine that you know things were, were were pretty pretty i mean it's just it's a given and if you're a police officer working on a particular case and you get a call from above meaning higher rank um and they say for example look this case has reached a dead end you're not to investigate any further that's it that's the end of the story you don't continue investigating otherwise your career's on the line and other scary things can happen too so you know these this i don't think it's um i think this is a lot better and a lot meatier excuse the pun and has a lot more substance than just some crazy conspiracy theory i think this is at the heart of this is something very sinister and dire and you've also got to remember Paul, that quite a few people involved to this very day have got suppression orders on their names. Okay? 
Right. Now, to get a suppression order, that comes from some very, very powerful place. And quite frankly, it's it's scary. And to think that today in Adelaide and also other places because people involved, like the doctor, he moved actually, Paul. And that's one of the things that kind of got him off the hook a little bit in that when he moved to that town that we discussed where you and I stayed, yes, um, Mount Gambia, the crimes continued to happen. But in my mind, that doesn't absolve him. But in the police eyes at the time, the fact that these horrendous crimes continued to happen and he was living in Mount Gambia, I can only pray and hope because they didn't have CCTV and all the things they've got today and tracking stations for mobiles, had none of that. I can only hope that due diligence was was given to making sure or at least knowing his whereabouts, even though he yeah. was ostensibly in another town. But that then brings up the, the, the very important point that it was way, way more than one person. Yeah. Now, the reason it's it's referred to as the family is because the suspicion is it's a it's a grump it, it's a bunch of people working together. But Dad, listen, they served a warrant on Millhouse's cottage, right? And they found they did find some stuff, right? They didn't just have nothing. They actually, I was wrong there. They found uh, rope and garbage bags, which were the same type that housed Muir's remains when they mm. were found yep. at low tide. And apparently they found traces of blood on the bathroom floor, but it had been cleaned over and Correct. over and over with some yep. sort of cleaning product. And so they couldn't test it. But yep. uh, so at that point, that so that, that does that sound circumstantial to you? Very at that much point, so. They were, it was they were circumstantial hoping... enough for them to arrest him yep. um, and, and try and follow through with due process. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they couldn't get any proof. No. And also, Paul, it's very important to remember, and I know we're jumping the gun a little bit, but one of the key things about this particular case of the five people we're going to mention mm -hmm. is one of the strong things that ties them together is the similarity of, of injury. And that's yeah. one of the things that the police used and called in various suspects because they were known to have committed similar acts, um, but they couldn't, they couldn't make it stick. And yeah, but look, Paul, there's so much to cover. My, my, my gut feeling is that this could even be a three-parter. Well, look, I was going to say, at this point, they're trying to kind of... I think um, Dr. Milhouse's trial is happening late 1980, uh, which is a year, more than a year, after Muir's uh, body was found. And they kept kind of pushing down these dead ends and uh, Dr. Milhouse's attorneys got him off. Uh, he was acquitted. And over, I think... It took another year or so for things to kick off again. Um, 1981 is when the next body was found. At this point, the police hadn't actually publicly linked Barnes or Muir, um, Alan Barnes being the, that young kid who was hitchhiking, and Muir. They hadn't actually kind of said publicly that there was any link to them. And really, because of the lack of drugs found in the system, because Muir's organs were gone, they couldn't actually chemically kind of. That was one of the you know things they couldn't link. Yeah. Uh, and so then it, it just sort of kind of it just it went quiet for a while until August twenty seventh, nineteen eighty one. But we're going to pick up from that day, that fateful day, that Thursday back in nineteen eighty one, next week on part two of Loose Units, the Shadow Files, the Family. 
Now, if you are in Adelaide and you have any kind of concrete info or anything you want to kind of tell us confidentially, please do let us know. We're really, we kind of want to try and figure figure this shit out. I mean, it's it's so deeply disturbing. I had to stop several times whilst researching this case. I did not know that Australian crime reached this kind of level of depravity. I did. I didn't know. I just didn't know. And I'm, I'm sure people in Adelaide have known for decades. And Dad, as someone who's worked on the front lines, you definitely know what people are capable of, what evil people are capable of. But rest assured that we will have a palate cleansing episode of Loose Ends for you this Friday. One of our listeners sent us an absolutely bonkers story. So we're going to talk about that on Loose Ends this Friday. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, head across to facebook.com forward slash loose units. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Cheerio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria algae body oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.